thank you so much for tuning in to the Assembly of Perry, Georgia podcast. Let's join Pastor Tim McLaughlin for the message. Everybody find 1 John 4.18? Absolutely, it's right there, see? There we go. 1 John 4.18. It says, there is no fear in love. Everybody say, no fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Now, one of the meanings of fear is the word dread. The word dread means to anticipate with great apprehension. So you can look at this and say there is no dread, there is no apprehension in perfect love. Perfect love. God's love. Agape love. God's love expels all dread, all fear, and all apprehension. When you're born again, when you're filled with the Spirit, your past is behind you. Amen? And you are made in perfect love. Not perfect in yourself, but perfect in Christ. So therefore, we are perfect in Christ. We do not need to dread because His love removes all dread. Understand that. When you are a new creature in Christ, His love, perfect love, removes all fear. Don't allow the enemy to try to push fear on you about your past or what is to come. Your past is behind and your future is bright in Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the perfect love of Jesus. Lord, as we celebrated communion this morning, representing that perfect love, Jesus' body given for us. Lord, we thank you that that gift, Lord, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Fear is finished. The child of God does not need to fear, be in dread, or be apprehensive. For we put our trust and our hope in you. We thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to stand behind this desk. I thank you for the anointing to preach your word. And I thank you for each and every one that's here and those that are watching online. Give them ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive what the Spirit of the Lord would say to them. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Today is the last Sunday of our series on perfect love. And so today I want to talk to you about marriage and relationships. Marriage and relationships. Go with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Flip, flip, flip. I like it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse number 17. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all in cleanliness with greediness. 
But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth as in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now I want everybody to grab a hold of your seat. Buckle your seatbelt. I don't want anybody to fall out of your seat this morning about what I'm getting ready to say. Everybody ready? I love my wife, but she is not God's match for me. Woo, wow, brother, some reactions there. That's not why I got this, I promise you. I was working on my lawnmower, bad accident. But anyhow, but I want you to understand something. There is no such thing as a perfect match. We, we, we talk about these things. How many of you remember the dating game? Remember that? We got that slide right there. How many of you remember that? Everybody that's lifting their hand is over 40. All right? Maybe over 50. I'm not sure. But anyhow, the dating game. I think about this. Understand that God is not an omnipotent matchmaker. He's not spending his days deciding which two people would lead to the easiest, happiest, and attractive twosome. Could you imagine, if you, if you remember the dating game, Jesus standing on one side of the wall Tim, we've got three ladies on the other side of the wall. Which one do you choose? Well, I don't know, Jesus. Listen, Jesus is not up there playing matchmaker. God is certainly not sending down Christian-biased algorithms for the prophet of eHarmony. Listen, we've got a part to play in this. So this week we're going to talk about not only finding the right person to spend your life with, but more importantly, being the right person as well. Okay, I need to say that again because two people said amen. It's not about finding the right person, it's about being the right person. Thank you very much, I appreciate that. So remember, there's no dread or apprehension in perfect love. So thus, the question, is there a perfect mate out there for you? How many of you have ever heard the term soulmates? Soulmates is something made up. Nowhere in the Bible does God, Jesus, or the apostles give us any hint that there is one perfect mate out there that we should be searching for. God brought me from north of Detroit to a place called Cookville, Tennessee that I didn't even know existed, didn't know. I was sitting in a Cracker Barrel restaurant, and the most beautiful woman came and served me that day, and 27 and a half years later, we're still married. Do you think God was up there going, okay, Tim, Cookville, Cracker Barrel, yeah, right there that morning, yep, Sheridan's going to work, pancakes, yeah. I don't think so. But I do believe this. I, I do believe that, that when we trust God, when we're seeking God, when we're, when, we're, when we're praying and we're believing for the best, I believe that God will put 
people in our path. So there's no such thing as a soulmate. Look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. The Apostle Paul said, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Now what Paul is talking about right here is remaining single. Now, before anybody throws anything at me, I'm not saying you should remain single. And I don't think neither is God or neither is the Apostle Paul. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28 says, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Everybody say male and female. Thank you very much. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. God said, be fruitful and multiply. So you think he wants us to be alone. We can't multiply alone. So I don't think that's what God is necessarily wanting. He wants us to find a person to be with, but he also wants us to be equally yoked. So we need to understand that marriage and relationships are very significant in the Bible. The metaphor of Christ's relationship to the church is itself a symbol of a wedding, of a marriage relationship. We, the church, are Christ's bride, and he's the groom. Christ came knowing that we were not perfect, but that he was the perfect groom. I was not perfect when I married my wife. You don't have to say amen, it's okay. Neither was she, but together in Christ, what God has done in our lives, our children, our relationships, the ministry. I believe that when, when we got together, again, it wasn't some, some magical moment that I saw her as she, she brought my, my pancakes on a cloud. But I believe that when we both begin to seek Christ together, then God began to move and begin to work in our relationship. God is our example. Christ is our example of what we need to try to become in life and in relationships. Emily Timble of the Huff Post said this, There is no perfect mate for you because no one is perfect. We are all flawed. Whomever you marry will not be your match. Match implies two puzzle pieces interlocking perfectly and resting for eternity. That is not marriage. No two people will ever fit perfectly. Marriage isn't about finding this mythical relationship. It's about finding someone you're willing to commit to for a lifetime of work, sacrifice, and active, not feeling love that marriage requires. Get that. It's about work. It's about putting in the work. It's not something mythical or magical. It's about putting the work in and asking Christ to be involved in the middle of that work. What I'm saying is as far as God is concerned, it's more important for you to be the perfect mate than for you to find the perfect mate. Boy, it got quiet. See, the world that we live in teaches us that the key to a good marriage is finding the right person. See, if that were the case, 
she wouldn't have had it. All right? See, the world teaches the key to finding a good marriage is finding the right person. We, we were both lost. We both, we weren't in church. We didn't know Jesus. It wasn't until we, after we started dating that we went to church and then we realized how imperfect we were and how we needed Jesus. And then when we asked Jesus to come into our life and we got baptized in water, then we looked at each other and said, we need to get married. Now we're equally yoked. Prior to that, we were not. Wow, it's quiet in this place. God teaches that the key to a good marriage is being, is, is being the right person. And the key to being the right person is making sure your ways in your life please God. The keys to making sure that you're the right person is making sure that your ways please the Lord. The scriptures are full of instructive Bible verses about husbands, wives, and marriage. Verses that can help us learn and grow while discerning the knowledge needed to discover marital bliss. These scriptures tell us what God believes about love and the importance of honoring one's marriage. See, I believe that's the biggest problem we have in this nation today is we don't honor the marriage. Some of you have heard me say this before, and some of you need to hear this. And if you're dating and you're thinking, hey, I want to go to Pastor Tim and, and ask him for some marriage counseling because I want to get married, let me just tell you this. I have been credentialed with the Assemblies of God for over 20 years. In that time, I've only done six marriages. It's not because I haven't been asked. It's just that most people don't make it through the first counseling appointment. Because I, I look at people, and as I begin to counsel people, I will let them know whether I think that they are equally yoked or not equally yoked, whether I think that they should marry or not marry. I had one preacher tell me right now, he said, well, you just need to marry him. He said, it's up to them whether it succeeds. He said, the Bible says it's better to marry than to burn. I said, that is a bad use of that scripture. It's my responsibility that when I put my signature, my vow in that, that it is until death do they part. Now, I've only done six weddings. I've probably done over 100 funerals. Those funerals, they take it serious. I've never had anybody get up. But out of the six marriages I've done, I can tell you this, four of them ended in divorce. That grieves me. And I believe that grieves God. I've told people before, I said, this is the deal. If you're going to come in here and you're going to invite 200 of your closest friends, if you're going to have five bridesmaids and five groomsmen and you're going to stand up here and you're going to declare to all these people why you should be getting married, then if you decide to call it quits because you don't want to be with that person anymore, are you willing to come back in here and invite all those people and stand before them and tell them why you should be able to get divorced? They look at me like, well, no. I said, then I'm not going to marry you. You need to be accountable. We need to take it serious. We need to understand what marriage is about and the importance of honoring that marriage. This is why the passage in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5 are such great instruction manuals for Christian couples. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us, given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This not only replies to relationships, but this replies to everyday living. 
But when you think about relationships, do not marry unless you are willing to give your life for your spouse. Do not marry unless you're willing to give your life for your spouse. Marriage is not until I get fed up. Marriage is until death do us part. This morning, I want to discuss two things about marriage and relationships. Number one, what not to do in our marriage relationships. What not to do in our marriage relationships. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now anytime you see the word Gentile, it's talking about non-Jews and they were considered as unbelievers or sinners. Okay, So as you're reading this, this I say therefore and testify to the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the unbelievers, the sinners, walk. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all in cleanliness with greediness. Now, let me clarify what I just said about Gentiles. Because we are Gentiles. Anybody in here that's Jew, Jewish, born Jewish? One, praise the Lord. The rest of us, so we're Gentiles. So is that talking about unbelieving sinners? Then we were. But after Christ, we are grafted in. But when, when he's talking about them, he's trying to talk to Jews about these unbelievers and not to walk as the way those unbelievers walked. So Paul says, don't walk as an unbeliever. A, don't live like unbelievers. Don't live like unbelievers. Ephesians 5.3 says, but fornication and all uncleanliness or covetousness let it not even be named among you as fitting for saints. There should not be a hint of sexual immorality among you. We live in a nation, I just heard this just, just about a week ago, I heard somebody say this about, well, that's why you should live together. If we live together and we tried it out, the divorce rate would go down. That is stupid. We, we live in a nation where, where people are fornicating. We wonder why we have the diseases we have and we have the sin problems we have and why abortion is the way that it is and why our government even allows those things. It's because we've allowed sin to govern instead of righteousness. We all know the damage extramarital affairs can have on a marriage. But Ephesians 5.3 means that Christians and Christian couples, not only should a Christian not have someone on the side, he or she should never even be the type to harmlessly flirt with someone at lunch, work, or anywhere else for the matter. So let me just say this right now for those watching online, those sitting right here, and if you talk to anybody else and they say, well, that Pastor Tim, he just, he, he just boy, he's got issues. Well, that's true, but anyways... I don't like Facebook. I didn't have Facebook for years. We moved here, I think it was about a year ago. Uh, the, the Georgia district said, hey, we're going to start doing some things on Facebook. I said, I don't have a Facebook account. Can you email it? They said, no, if you want to watch it, you need to get on Facebook. So I created a Facebook account. 
I made an agreement with my wife when I set up that Facebook account that I would not allow or accept any female friends. Well, it's just Facebook. I'm just not going to do it. So if you have sent me a friend request and you wonder why I haven't accepted that friend request, it's not personal. I love you. I'm just not going to do it. Back when Billy Graham first started his ministry, the very first crusade Billy Graham ever did was in Modesto, California. He was out in Modesto, California. Him and his team had checked into the hotel. They were getting ready for the, that, that night's crusade. He was up in his hotel room and he was praying. And he said, Lord, I just pray that my ministry is pleasing to you and successful in every way. And the Lord said, before you do anything else, you need to do this. And he gave Billy Graham this revelation. Billy Graham got up and he grabbed one of them hotel pads and he started writing what the Lord was downloading. When he got it written, he went down to the lobby. He asked the lady, he said, can you make copies of this? He made a bunch of copies. He went back to his room. He called everybody on his team. He said, come up to my room now. They came in and he handed them all a piece of paper. They said, what is this? He said, this is how we're going to operate in ministry. And he said, you need to sign it. And if you don't want to sign it and you don't want to live by it, you can't be on my team. That piece of paper today is called the Modesto Manifesto. And what Billy Graham said is this. He says, you, he said, even if you're getting ready to get on an elevator, and if you're the only man and it's the only woman on that elevator, you wait, let her go down, and you take the next elevator. If you get ready to get in a car, a cab or something, and there's a woman in that cab, you wait for the next cab. Don't you pray for women unless there's other women there praying with you. In everything you do, make sure that you're doing it above board and give no one the opportunity to accuse you of anything. Billy Graham had a successful ministry for many, many years because he honored God in everything that he did. There was never a hint of sexual immorality. We should be careful of the things that we watch on TV, what we read, and the things that we view online. Why put yourself in a position to be tempted if you don't have to? We should never make excuses for what we are doing when no one is around to watch us. Because He's always watching. Don't put yourself in that position. I've heard both men and women say, I thought I could handle it. Or I never meant for the situation to get this far out of hand. Not only should we not live like unbelievers, but B, we should not think like unbelievers. Ephesians 4.18 says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Notice this scripture lets us know when our minds are darkened or drawn away from the light, which is Christ, our hearts will follow. When our minds are darkened because of the things that we're watching, the things that we're reading, the things that we're, 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 are constantly before us, eventually our heart will fall. If, if you're watching rated R and rated X movies and sometimes PG and PG-13 stuff, I'm just telling you, if you get enough of that stuff in your mind, eventually your heart's going to follow what your mind is always thinking on. We need to keep our minds focused on God. We need to keep our mind. He said, think on what sort of things are just, what sort of things are true, what sort of things are pure, what sort of things are holy, what sort of things are lovely. 
If there be any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, think on these things. If you're watching something or you're reading something and it doesn't fit that category, stop. Don't put yourself in that position. Many times we strive to live like Christians should, yet we walk so closely to the world's systems that we fall. We sometimes are afraid of peer pressure from friends, and we don't want to be alienated for our Christian beliefs. You know, we talk to, about teenagers and to, and to kids about peer pressure, but the reality is the peer pressure from other adults is even worse. In the workplace, when people talk about wanting to go out and, and have a few drinks or, or let's go out and do this or let's go out, you know, we, we, they got moves about, movies about Mother's Days out and stuff like that. Listen, if that's all Christian fun, that's fine. But if you start putting yourself in positions that you should not be in and you know you shouldn't be in there, don't worry about what they think. You need to worry about what he thinks. God said in Psalm 1-1, Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Don't spend your time with the wicked and sinful or scornful because you become like those people the more you spend time with those people. 1 Corinthians 15-33 says, Don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. I rem- I, I, the ministry that my wife and I ran for, for, for nearly 14 years. We would tell these people, they, they would come in, many of them were off the street, many of them were out of jail, many of them, you know, drug addict, alcoholics, whatever, they would come in, they would spend 14 months in our program, man, they memorized over 100 scriptures, they took over 48 classes, they were full of the Holy Ghost, tongue-talking people, man, they, they could sing, they could shout, they could do all those things, and then I would always tell them right before they graduate, understand this, you can't go back to the crack house and try to win them, because they will take you down. Let someone else go do those things. You need to get in church. You need to continue to be discipled. You need to, you need to find people that, that are like-minded, spirit-filled, and hang out with them. Evil company corrupts good moral habits. You don't want it to be that way, but that's just what happens. Paul tells us here in Ephesians that when we start thinking like unbelieving Gentiles, we will start acting like unbelieving Gentiles. Your heart will become hard and calloused. Ephesians 4.18 says, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them. You know the easiest way to prevent ignorance is discipleship. When you're in church, when you're with other believers, when you're in Bible studies, when you're reading your word, when you're watching godly programming, that gets in your heart and helps you build up a tolerance against those other things that will destroy you. If you lose your sensitivity to the advantages you have in your relationships, your relationships will fall. Ephesians 4.19 says, Who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanliness with greediness. Don't lose your sensitivity to the Lord. Don't get caught up in bitterness, rage, and anger. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with malice. Thinking and acting like unbelievers creates a barrier to the intimacy you need in marriage. It also becomes a barrier in other relationships, not just your marriage. 
Again, I can tell you after 27 and a half years, how many of you been in here been married 30 years or more? Keep your hands up. 40 years or more? 50 years or more? 60 years or more? How long are y'all married, Mike? 54 years. Praise God. Listen, I'm not even going to put them on the spot, but I can just tell you, there's some work that needs to go into that. There's some things that we need to do. We need to, we need to understand, listen, there are going to be times we're going to be tested, we're going to be tried. There's going to be times where we're just going to want to, uh, but we can't think like unbelievers think. It creates a barrier in our relationship with our spouse. So whether you are married or not, all this applies to you because, because in other relationships, see, we shouldn't talk like unbelievers. Ephesians 5, 4 says, Neither filthiness nor foolishness talking nor coarse jesting, which you are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Unbelieving Gentile talk is filled with hurtful words. Unbelie- Listen, I remember when I was in the car business. Spent 10 years in the car business. See, God still does miracles. He delivered me from the car. But I remember when I was in the car business. The, the divorce rate in the car business is higher than, than just about any other type of, of business that's out there. I've, I've checked. It's still super high today. Long hours. The love of money. But the biggest thing is when you get around other people and you spend so many hours with people that are unbelievable. And I would hear guys that I worked with constantly telling crude jokes and talking about their wife and saying things and they, they would stand on the parking lot or in the break room and they would just criticize their wives and they would sit there and they would all laugh about it and I would turn around and walk away they're like what you're too good for us I'm like I'm just not going to be involved in that kind of conversation oh you know I'm just joking I said no nobody here knew you were joking and when you speak those things out there's power of life and death in the tongue and many of those guys that well I'm just joking quit taking it so serious and they would mock me for what I believed, ended up in divorce. I ended up in ministry. Not just curse words, but also insults that put down jokes that, that, that are about your, your spouse, that try to belittle their, your spouse. Don't say things to make your spouse look bad. Regardless of what's going on in your relationship, regardless of what fight you might have had, don't Share your dirty laundry with other people. Never insult or belittle your spouse in public or in private because that's how the Gentiles, unbelievers, sinners talk. And never talk about your spouse in a demeaning way to a person of the opposite sex because you're just asking for trouble. Listen, we, we work in environments, whether it's on a production line or in an office. You work with people of the opposite sex. And if you start complaining to that person, you, you can't say, well, I'm friends with Listen, you're looking for sympathy, and you're going to get it in all the wrong places. Don't do it. Make sure you keep your disagreement civil and private. If you want a strong marriage, don't act like the unbelieving Gentiles. Don't think like the unbelieving Gentiles. Don't talk like the unbelieving Gentiles. So number two, what to do? See, my wife always tells me, you're really good at preaching what we shouldn't do. Can you tell me what we should do? So I am following my wife's advice. I'm going to tell you what to do. 
Whew. See, I'll say that to the end because right before we go out, all right? What to do in our marriage and relationships? A, learn how to handle conflict. Learn how to handle conflict. Conflict is a reality in almost every marriage and relationship. Just because we shouldn't behave like unbelievers doesn't mean we won't at some point. Listen, some of us, we, 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 we get this tendency to argue and fight from our families, our parents, our grandparents, maybe people we hang around, people we spend time with. Maybe it's something we watched on television and we saw how people in relationships on TV act. And like, like I said before, if we allow that, if we continue to watch enough of that, if we, I mean, we, we are, we're going to imitate in a lot of ways things our parents did. We grew up in those houses. We need to renew our minds. We need to transform our lives to the things of God. If we, if we imitate those that argue, it will destroy our relationships, our marriage. But if we imitate Jesus, if we imitate what we read in the Word, if we do what the Word of God says, we can see our relationships become more healthy, our marriages become more healthy. Now listen, you're going to get angry. Even after 54 years, you're going to get angry in marriage. Do you know that the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, be angry? I'm not making it up. It says be angry. Be angry. You have the right to be. Do you know that God, be joyful, be cheerful, be at peace, be angry. The problem is I think many times we get angry in the wrong areas at the wrong things. We need to be more angry at sin and the things of the world. You have the right to be angry sometimes. Your husband or wife can do things that offend you or just simply make you upset. So you have the right to be angry. However, you don't have the right to sin. Do not sin. In what ways does anger play out in sinful ways? Violent behavior, bad language, hateful thoughts. And we could go on and on. If we're not careful, we can not only become mad at the ones we love, but we can allow the anger to become a barrier preventing the love we should give them as well. If we stay mad, that can hurt our relationship even more over time if it's not dealt with. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This type of behavior grieves the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter if you're right or have the right to be mad. Reacting in a wrong way can hurt not only your marriage or relationships, but can hurt your relationship with God also. How can Christians protect, protect themselves against the devastating effects of conflict? First, First, don't allow yourself to go to bed angry. Ephesians 4.26 says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Do not let the sun go down on you. Listen, if you get into a heated discussion, if, if you're in an argument, I'm not saying you're going to get it all figured out before you go to bed, but pray 
Say you're sorry before you go to bed. I'm going to tell you, it is hard to approach the throne of God holding on to the hand of your spouse angry. I know, I've got a lot of practice, okay? Oh, see, some of you are like, oh, he said that. You need to say that. Some of us, we, we'll, we'll carry this anger for days. Don't, don't carry it. Not only does it destroy your relationship with your spouse, not only does it, it, it destroy your relationship with God, it will destroy your health. Don't go to bed angry. Second, don't allow yourself to slander your spouse. Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you. Listen, guard your words. I like that old saying. Granny used to tell me all the time. If you can't say anything good, don't say anything at all. James says it this way, Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't act righteous when you're acting like a fool to your spouse. Woo. Third, realize an argument can leave you very angry. You'll think, well, they're wrong. They were unkind to me. They said hurtful things, and I can't forgive them. Listen, you need to understand, A, you need to make, make sure that you don't sin, but B, you need to make sure that you learn to forgive Learn to forgive. Thank you, Brother Eric. I appreciate you, Brother If If nobody else, I appreciate you. I don't know if that's because Chris is jabbing you with a pen, but I appreciate you, okay? <laughs> Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. Even as Christ forgave you. Even as Christ forgave you. Learn to apologize and mean it. Don't worry who's right or wrong. Just learn to forgive. How much, look at me, how much did Christ forgive you? How much did Christ forgive you? Did Christ forgive you of some of your sin? Part of your sin? Most of your sin? I hope not. He forgave all of our sins, because if He didn't, we'd never make it into heaven. He forgave all. Well, I'm going to forgive her for this, but no, that's not Christ. Forgive all. Ephesians 4.29, again, says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but it is good and necessary for education, that it may impart grace, grace, grace to the hearers. Anger, bitterness, unforgiveness is not grace. You didn't get what you deserved. You didn't get what you deserved. You deserved hell. You deserved death. You deserved it. Jesus took it for you. Your spouse doesn't deserve whatever you think. Boy, but what she, listen. She don't deserve it, neither do you. Learn to forgive. Learn to apologize. Not only to your spouse, but start with God. Lord, I'm sorry for allowing my anger to lead me to sin. I'm sorry 
for my rage. I'm sorry for the things that I said. And mean it. Not just words, but mean it. Pastor Michael, you want to come? Do you remember when you started dating your spouse? How many, how, Mike, do you remember when you started dating Debbie? Absolutely. That brother's got a sharp mind. You couldn't say, when you started dating your spouse, you couldn't say enough good about them. You couldn't wait to see them. You couldn't wait to talk to them. I remember when Sheridan and I, like I said, I met her at Cracker Barrel. My kids laugh at me all the time. I said, Dad, please don't tell that story, especially when you're online. But she came around. She took my order. She brought me my food. She came back out to refill my coffee. She said, sir, is there anything else you need? I said, can I have a little honey? Honey? Hey, you say it was corny? 27 and a half years, let me just tell you, it wasn't too corny, all right? But over those years, the things that we, we have learned from each other. We talked last week about performance. See, if, if it was all fake, I'd still have to try to fake it today. We had to make a decision then it was real. I had to know before I said I do, before I said my vows, before I said until death do us part. I had to know that the way I treated her, the way I talked to her then, I was going to have to carry on and it was going to have to get better. I was going to have to be a better person. I was going to have to grow in my relationship with Christ. I was going to have to learn to be that perfect person. I couldn't just put it all on her. See, when we talk about relationships and we think, well, I need to find that perfect person, they don't exist. You're going to be lonely long. But if you understand, let me strive for perfection. Let me strive to be who I need to be in Christ. Then when you get in that relationship, the relationship will be stronger for it. How about today? How do you speak to each other today? We need to learn to work on being kind to one another more often, especially to those that we love the most. Husbands, don't just show her your love. Show her your love by what you do, but tell her often. Let me say that again. Don't just show her your love by what you do. Tell her often. I used to be one of these because that's just how I am. I'm, I'm the fix-it guy. Any other fix-it guys in here? Nobody's going to raise your hand. You guys, I'm telling you, you throw me under the bus this morning, man. I'm a fix-it guy. I knew there was a problem. I knew something needed to be done. I would do that. And then something would happen. We'd get in a disagreement or something like that. She goes, you don't even tell me you love me. I'm like, I just mowed the grass. That's what happened to my forehead, by the way. I was working on the lawnmower. She said, you know, that's great. But the grass isn't who I live with. You are. It's not just the actions. It's my words. My words speak volume. Husbands, make sure to tell your wife you love her. Wives, wives, don't just assume he should know you love him. Speak it to him. Don't just assume. Speak it to him. Look for ways to let each other know how appreciated you are of the relationship. You need to let each other know. 
Again, I told you a couple weeks ago, I, I, send my, I did this morning, I send my wife poetry. I don't write it, but I find something that makes me, oh yeah, I feel that way. And I send it to her. Find ways to let them know verbally how much you care, how much you love. See, the results of a godly Christian marriage or any relationship should be like the eulogy a preacher gave at one of the funerals he conducted. Listen to this. Listen. Mary was a great woman in our church, the preacher said. He went on to add, her husband Ken died two or three years ago. I'll never forget being next to Ken as they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. I said to Ken, 50 years is a long time to be with someone, isn't it? Ken leaned toward the preacher and responded, not nearly as long as it would have been without her. You know, in the grand scheme of things, 27 and a half years is not that long. We talk all the time. I, I believe I'm going to live up into my 80s. In Jesus' name. So that's 30 more years. I want, I want to make sure we, we say this every time we have an anniversary. I pray that the years coming are more than the years that pass. Now eventually, we ain't going to be able to say that a whole lot more. But today, I believe that the years coming are more than the years past. And I know that in that relationship, for that relationship to work, I need to work on me. Just as I started this thing out and I said, listen, understand that marriage is an institution just like our walk with God. He is the groom, we are the bride. Do you think I can expect Christ to change? He's perfect. I know I need to change. I can't expect her to change. She's close to perfect, but I can't expect her to change. I need to change. What are you doing to try to be the perfect spouse? To be the perfect person for that relationship? What are you doing for yourself? Remember, finding the right mate isn't as important as being the right mate. Finding the right mate is not as important as being the right mate. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast from the Assembly at Perry, Georgia. God bless.